my lover asked me to go on a road trip with him this weekend and I couldn't because of the kids. And so I said no. And on the way here to drop me off, uh, he was like, oh, so this new girl that he's dating, she's mm. going to go with him. Right. Mm. And it's just like, ah, right. So evolved poly me is like, yay, I'm so happy that you have somebody who can randomly go on a road trip with you and you won't be alone. Super happy. But human me is like, it, it's, I'm grieving. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multiamory Podcast, we're talking about parenting and raising children while being polyamorous and how to balance it all. Joining us today to talk about this is Jessica Daylover. Jess co-hosts the Remodeled Love podcast with her husband, Joe, where they talk about their polyamory journey, their experiences parenting as polyamorous people, as well as many other topics. They just released an ebook entitled Polyamory and Parenting, Navigating Non-Monogamy as Parents of Young Children. This has been a topic that gets requested a lot, so we're really excited to have Jess on the show now to share her experiences and what she's learning from teaching others about her journey. So Jess, thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to be here. <laughs> Huge fan of the show. Okay, just had to get that out. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you. Happy to have you here. So let's start out, where did this all begin? for you. Can you give us the highlight reel of your journey to polyamory and being a parent? Yes. I was like, where did what begin? I'm going to need you <laughs> yeah. to be more specific. So you want the How Reader's did... Digest polyamorous journey? Yeah, I mean, we don't have to be as milk toast as the Reader's Digest is. Okay. We can be a little more spicy if you like. Absolutely. I'm always <laughs> down for some spice. Yeah. So it's just that age old story of looking back. I feel like I kind of always was polyamorous, queer, neurodivergent, um, monogamy never made much sense to me, but I never knew there was another way, didn't know there was another script possible. Um, also never really had any relationships, uh, was very uncomfortable with, you know, quote unquote commitment. So anytime I was in a relationship, always had agreements, right? Uh, moved to Reno from the Midwest in 2008, met my partner, Joe, in the theater scene. We started dating. We actually started dating because I had, <laughs> I'm very witchy and clairvoyant, and I had a vision that he was my baby daddy. And so wow. I was like, mm, wow. do I like him? Because we were just friends at the time, and it like reverse planted the crush in my head. And so we <laughs> started amazing. dating. And, it, you know, I don't know if, well, you're, th you're a th theater person, so... The theater scene is inherently kind of queer and polyamorous. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's where oh, all the 100%. kids go. That's I'm where we all escape to yes. as soon as we can. <laughs> I'm shocked at and all the so, people I come across. Um, it was always naturally kind of there. And I would say we were monogamish. And he knew I was queer coming into the relationship. And so it was just sort of in our relationship, you know, we'd be at a party and I'd be like, hey, I, I just made out with so-and-so in the bathroom. Just wanted to let you know. And he'd be like, uh. Okay. And then cut to three months before we're getting married. And we go tubing the Truckee River with some friends. And they're like, hey, have you ever heard of this thing called polyamory? And I just felt like every cell in my body became electric. And it's that moment where you're, you recognize yourself. Like you, you know how labels can sometimes be constricting, but other times they're the very thing that sets you free. And I heard mm -hmm. myself in the label and I just came alive. And I was like, that's who I am. I don't need, I, we don't need to talk about it. I don't need to know any, I don't need to read a book. We can start right now. And the more excited I got, the more scared my partner, Joe became. And like I said, we were three months away from getting married and it just, it's that journey. So many previously monogamous couples know where one person's very excited. The other person's very scared. The very excited person 
can't stop talking about it, doesn't want to stop talking about it, doesn't want to put it on hold any longer. And so we just um, moved forward and I ended up meeting somebody and falling pretty hard and was just like, this is who I am. And if you are truly my partner, like if you are truly meant to be my partner, then you um, would it support me in exploring this. Otherwise, we shouldn't be partners. And that sort of launched the exploration. I call those first couple of years. You read the book. You know, I call them the dark ages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Joe disagrees yeah. with that. <laughs> I think he's wrong. He's kidding himself about that. Um, we made a lot of mistakes. We would both do things very differently if we could. We got married in 2013, became polyamorous in 2013. It was hard, very hard until about 2015 when Joe finally got his first other partner. And then all of a sudden, a lot of that fear was like, oh, I get it now. And that alchemy comes in Um, and things started to get easier and gooier. And then in 2018, we had our first child, Aslan, named after the King of Narnia. And then in 2021, we had our second child, Lucius. We've been polyamorous the whole time. It's kind of coasting now. Um, We are both professional entertainers, producers. And when the pandemic hit, killed our whole industry. And so we were like... This remodeled love was kind of a project on the back burner. I'm like, our polyamorous life is so interesting. And I think the intersection with parenting, because polyamory is controversial in the, you know, normie default world, right? But add in parenting, and it's even more controversial, but it's also controversial within polyamory, even within the community. There's Mm. some controversy there. So I was like, I feel like there's a niche here where just living our lives out loud could be very educational for people. And that brings us to now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. So, so I think it's pretty easy and understandable for many of us to see in like mainstream normie land how combining polyamory and parenting can be controversial. You know, we have these social mores that associate polyamory with with sex and um you know, all of these kind of eight normative values and then we associate children with like you know, innocence, right? Need to protect them from everything at all costs. And so, of course, you know, that creates all the arguments why being polyamorous and parenting must be terrible. What's your take on the controversy within the polyamorous community about parenting? Girl, so many theories. Um, Mm. (laughs) I just think a lot of times there's this whole trope within the community of autonomy and a lot of people inside the community who grew up knowing they didn't want kids and they associate their polyamory with that autonomy. And a lot of polyamorous people actually have a, I will not date parents, like Hmm, part of their boundary. And I I see it a lot more in kind of toxic Facebook groups and Reddit and things Mm -hmm. like that, where people are just like, I refuse to date parents. Um, so I don't know if it's just this attitude of it, it, it's in, it's not in alignment with why some people became polyamorous. It's not logical to me and I don't really understand it, especially because, um, I try to be somebody who's very like, there is no one right way and to each their own, especially with polyamory and also parenting, but really parenting does not make sense inside the nuclear family within monogamy at all. So the fact that people are so against it is baffling to me. Yeah, to kind of touch on that, on the flip side, I find that a lot of people out there, especially like Eli Chef and people who are doing longitudinal studies on parents who are polyamorous, they talk so much about how having multiple people around children is so wonderful because it creates this like unbelievable structure that multiple people can thrive from. And kids have so many different opportunities to learn from different adults and how great that is. Have you found that to be the case for yourself? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's talk about uh, postpartum depression in America, Mm, right? It is, it's astronomical compared to more socialist countries or countries with non-nuclear family uh, normalities, right? Because the hormonal 
fuckery that you guys go through, uh, that people, that women birthing people go through hormonally, the physical healing. So my first birth was extremely traumatic, right? I couldn't mm-hmm. sit down for nine weeks. Okay. Wow. Um, I had traumatic time breastfeeding, right? The whole thing was just trauma. And then the idea that I would have to go into being a parent who maybe in a world where I have like a regular job where I only had six weeks before I had to get back to work and I'm up all night breastfeeding or failing to breastfeed. And maybe I have a shitty partner who's not doing his part and there's no aunties or grandmas or other partners in the home to take a shift. And I'm up every 20 minutes with my refluxy baby, baby number two, who did not sleep for the first year of his life. Like that will make you want to, and you know, content warning here, postpartum depression comes with a lot of dark thoughts. So that's my content warning. That shit will make you want to kill yourself or kill your family right? That is how postpartum depression in America is just astronomical because we are putting this script on birthing people to do the job of 20 people. And it's just not feasible. And so the idea that I could have had a baby in a home with even one extra partner, let alone four or five who were interested in the well-being of the mother so that the mother, the birthing person could receive just as much care as the newborn. Life-changing. Mom. Yeah, that's fantastic. And so I was curious too, to just kind of touch back on your story of what was the decision to have kids like? What was that? Was there any talk about do we stay polyamorous? I know some people close their relationship during pregnancy or, you know, what, what was that decision making process and that communication like for you? Um, okay. So like I said, full disclosure, I'm very woo. So I knew my whole life uh, that I was going to have two children and that that draw was very real. Um, even though I was kind of terrified of the whole process, it was it was a whole spiritual journey for me and my husband as well. And we talk about very bluntly in the book in the pregnancy chapters that I do not recommend exploring polyamory uh, if you are just now starting the having children process, or even if you're in the turbulent years. We would not have made it. And I'm just going to be completely honest because all of my control dramas came out in the early stages of polyamory, right? My shadow side, my attachment style, right? And when you mix that with pregnancy hormones, like there's just no way. And the whole, I, I really do think that pregnant people need to be catered to and that there needs, there is a hierarchy there. And that's not always going to work with exploring polyamory. And so if you're working through becoming a parent, going through pregnancy, while also having to work through all of the inner growth and learning and unpacking and mononormativity that must be undone as you are making the transition from monogamy to polyamory with a long-term partner, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I am saying it could set you back. Yeah. much right. further yeah. than yeah. if you had sure. made that transition outside of that specific time frame. I We would not have made it. I can tell you that right now, especially because I'm going to be totally honest. You can weaponize your pregnancy and weaponize your children in a moment to manipulate a situation or to if you want to have a veto power or you just want to be, if you are lacking sleep and you just want to ruin your partner's day because they're in NRE, you are going to use that situation to do that. And there's nothing really anyone can say about it. The culture is going to support you in that. It's not going to encourage you to work through your stuff. It's going to be like new mother gets whatever she wants, et cetera, et cetera. And as it should be. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to talk about something that's in your book. You have a chapter that talks about the best and the worst and kind of the middle parts of being polyamorous while raising children. Um, so you you describe them as green, yellow, and red lights, which I love. That's, that's cool. Uh, and so can you give us some clear examples of what each of those are? Because again, yeah. the three of us don't have kids, but <laughs> I, I know that so many people out there are really interested in, in this subject. 
Yeah, I would definitely say that's one of the meatiest parts of our book uh, is our traffic lights, which actually started as a class, which is actually what birthed the whole book is that chapter. And I want to be specific that our book is very oriented to parents of young children because that journey is going to likely change. We're hoping to write volume two someday. Mm. Um, And so most of our Red lights, yellow lights, green lights are very specific to parents of young children and even specific to those who practice kitchen table polyamory, which is our style. But a green light is an example of something about the intersection of polyamory and parenthood that is just good, 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 good all around. So, for example, I had a girlfriend one time who enjoyed trading childcare with me. So a couple times throughout the week, she would drop off her daughter and I would watch our kids together. And then she would take them for equal amount of hours on the other part of the week. And then we would spend time together as well as like one big polycule with kids. And it was just, it was a dream come true on so many Mm. levels. It lifted the burden of being a stay-at-home mom. It made her life easier, my life easier. Uh, The dads appreciated the break that came with that as well. It also made us, we were able to spend time together that we wouldn't have been otherwise able to spend where kids maybe would have, quote unquote, gotten in the way of being able to see her Mm -hmm. uh, because we lived in two separate families. Being able to take care of them together allowed us to spend time together. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's green light. It's just, it makes parenting better. It makes polyamory better. Yellow light are examples of things that can be tough, right? They're not exactly the best moment, but there's usually a lesson involved in that. Um, Something that can make you dig in a little harder and recognize like this is this was hard, but it was okay. And an example of that is like maybe I'm on solo parenting duty because my husband is on a date and maybe that night the kids were kind of rough and uh, maybe I got broken up with as well. And now I have to parent and I don't really have time to process the breakup and I have to simultaneously be like, have fun, babe. Um, it's not going to kill me. It might make me a little bitter. And I might have to process those feelings later. But it also might lead me to looking within and communicating some boundaries. It might make me realize that after I go through a breakup, I need this much time to process. And mm. maybe your date could be at home and you could, you guys could take care of the kids together. And I could actually go to the river and cry. Or something like mm. that. So that's kind of a yellow light. It's kind of shitty, but it leads to growth. And a red light moment is something that there's no explanation. There's no this happened for a reason. There's no reframe that's going to make it okay. It is just crappy. And uh, we say like a red light moment is going to be the thing where you're like, if you end up quitting polyamory, for lack of a better phrase, it's going to be on a red light moment. Mm. And that is like... <laughs> I just had one on the way here actually to record. So my lover asked me to go on a road trip with him this weekend and I couldn't because of the kids. And so I said no. And on the way here to drop me off, uh, he was like, oh, so this new girl that he's dating, she's going to go with him. Right. Mm. And it's just like, "Ah," right. So evolved poly me is like, yay, I'm so happy that you have somebody who can randomly go on a road trip with you and you won't be alone. Super happy. But human me is like, it's I'm grieving. I am grieving the world in which um, I have more help at home that maybe we have two more wives or two more husbands or aunties or grandmas who can help my husband at home so that I can go on a random road trip. Or maybe I don't have kids and I can just take off and go. And the it's always the juxtaposition for me of when my partner without kids dates a partner without kids and they have all this autonomy that I don't have. And then I feel crappy talking about it because then I sound like a bad mom. And so then I have mom guilt and then it's just the spiral and there's no justification. It's just red light moment. I really appreciate just the existence of the yellow light in there because thinking about those moments and and I think that even pe- whether people have kids or don't have kids and they're practicing non-monogamy there's a lot of those yellow light moments and I think the funny thing is that people who are very critical of non-monogamy tend to look at those yellow light moments and see it as a red light right deal breaker mm-hmm. what like 
you're at home with the kids and your partner's out on a date having a great time, no way, that's horrible. And then those of us who have more experience in non-monogamy, I think tend to skew the opposite side of like, we're not going to talk about the yellow light moments because we're constantly on the defense of trying to make sure the world knows that this is valid and it's joyful and it's fulfilling. And so I can't really spend a lot of time talking about that crappy time where I had to watch the kids while my partner was out, right? Even though, I don't know, I think in that yellow light, what bandwidth or whatever it is you want to call it, like you said, there is so much growth and so much realness. And it's kind of like people on both ends of the spectrum sort of tend to gloss over that in between. That was so well said. Totally. I agree completely. And I think that yellow light moments lead to a lot of self-advocacy, which is such a great muscle for polyamorous people to, well, it's essential for us to develop. I think obviously even non-polyamorous people should develop that muscle, but it's like essential and crucial for us to develop. And those yellow light moments really make you lean into it. But you can see on my TikTok comments alone that people are very triggered that my husband's out on a date and I'm home with the kids and they're, you know, and I'm like, I appreciate y'all being triggered on my behalf, but also I'm fine. We're good. And I, and kind of back to one of your questions earlier, like, I think if you are new to polyamory with young children, those yellow light moments are going to be red light moments. And that's why Mm -hmm. I don't recommend it. Yeah. I did want to quickly ask when you are dating someone who doesn't have kids what is that like? Is there ever resentment? Is there ever moments where the two of you don't see eye to eye simply because they don't have that experience of having a child at home and knowing that that is a part of oneself and one's identity and, you know, they just have no idea. Is that challenging? Yeah, I mean, even just as like a single monogamous mother dating a non-parent, like those challenges all come up. And then also just, just like I said, it's often the juxtaposition for me, but it also comes with benefits. So on the mm-hmm. one hand, I might have a lot of envy for my partner's autonomy and freedom. On the other hand, I benefit from that because uh, if I'm dating another parent... <laughs> We're going to have a lot harder time scheduling than if I'm dating a non-parent who has a lot more freedom. And so I benefit from their flexibility and their autonomy. But at the same time, there's going to be a day where I'm actually, it just makes me sad. Mm. Right. And then just to wrap up this thing about the red, yellow, and green lights, what I really thought was interesting about that too, is you have certain things that end up on all three of the lights. And the one that you mentioned is specifically this not being able to fully embrace NRE when you're experiencing that in a new relationship. And I was curious if you could talk about how that fits into all three of those lights. I love your guys' questions. You could tell you're good at what you do. Yeah. (laughs) So part of my relationship with NRE, new relationship energy, has been so interesting to watch evolve as I have matured. And so I am a fire sign, Sagittarius, Enneagram 8. So I have addict energy. I like to get high. I like a lot of different medicines or drugs or whatever you want to call it. And so in my younger years, uh, I really enjoyed getting high on NRE and I would just deal with the crash, right? Uh, It's easier to deal with an NRE crash when you do not have a teething infant and a toddler who is in a bad mood, right? Um. So on the one hand, having kids doesn't allow me to get as high. And so sometimes I'm like, that's kind of a red light, you know, slash yellow light. But other times I, I, it acts as like the vision that always comes to me is when you take a kid bowling and they put up those gutter bumpers so they can't get a gutter ball. <laughs> it kind of acts like gutter bumpers for me where like I really like to dive into this NRE in probably an unhealthy way, but I've got these bumpers up here making sure that I don't do that. So it sort of forces me to stay in balance, whereas NRE can often take me very out of balance and I can't really afford that price tag anymore. I really like that metaphor. It's something that I've been trying to piece together my whole life that some of my longest lasting and healthiest relationships, there were those bumpers on the NRE. And it's not so extreme. It wasn't like, oh, I had to just completely cut off my heart. I still went bowling. I still have a fun time bowling. But (laughs) yeah, it was like there was some kind of either internal 
internal or external limit there. And I do think, at least for me and for a lot of people, that does really help so that you're not just like spinning into outer space and getting Mm. like so high that the crash is so extremely intense. Yeah. Or that you end up making a lot of bad decisions that you regret later on, you know, like signing a a lease or a cell phone plan or, you know, something (laughs) right away in those first few months. Yeah, the, the kids sort of force more mature decisions that and force me to because uh, NRE can be so self-absorbed, right? Mm-hmm. And so having kids reminds me that I that I have other people in my polycule, including children I'm responsible for. So I cannot go getting so selfish in the NRE, which is a mistake I have made in the past that almost cost me my marriage. Wow. So before we go on to talk about some more of the book and ask you some more questions, we're going to take a quick break to talk about some ways that you can support this show at home if this is content that you find valuable and something that you want us to be able to continue putting out into the world for free. Take a moment, check out our ads and our Patreon. And if any of it sounds interesting to you, check that out. And that directly helps contribute to our show. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And we're back. We are here with Jess Daylover of the Remodeled Love podcast. So in your book, you talk about what you call mom drop, which when I first read, I thought my first image was like some kind of mom-oriented Dropbox, but that's not what it is. And <laughs> you like drop also... your kids off and then you pick them up somewhere <laughs> and then you else. You pick like them up in the cloud somewhere your... else. Yeah, it was okay. like mic drop. But yeah, I'm Ooh, like, that's oh, that's too. Mom yeah. drop. It's like, like, like go I'm to your room. The mic mom as a mom. Drop. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Because I said so. Mom exactly. drop. Okay. And, and also I want to, before you give us a definition, also distinguish that it's not quite the same as dom drop or sub drop, maybe even a little different from con drop. I've heard a lot of drops in this community. Well, what is mom drop? I do want to say it is inspired by the idea of sub drop or mm. dom drop, which is just that polyamory and love being one of my favorite drugs um, can create a transcendental elevated experience. And you can be, let's say, peak experience, right? Um, Let's say you are, just as a mother, just getting away from your kids is an elevated experience, right? And that's just real mom talk right there. (laughs) So now add in, not just that I'm away from my kids, but I'm away on a weekend with not just my new lover and we're an NRE, but let's say he's a sugar daddy and he's spoiling me and we've got amazing sexual chemistry and 
throw in whatever else you want to do on this weekend, right? And you're creating this really, it's a peak experience, right? And we know peak experiences are dangerous, even just in certain rave drugs and stuff like that. You have to really make sure you have aftercare. And so mom drop for me is just leaving this almost fantasy world where you have the illusion of, I want this to last forever. There's this Christmas, Elmo Christmas movie where Elmo wishes that it could be Christmas every day and then he gets his wish. And then what do we find out that like Sesame Street falls to pieces because it can't be Christmas every day mm, and madness right, right. descends. And But in that <laughs> moment, when you're in the NRE and you're on the sexy getaway, you're like, this could be my life. I just, if I, you know, if I didn't have any responsibilities, I could be living this life every day. It'd be so glamorous. And now you have to return home. And, you know, in the kink world, aftercare is super important. They don't even recommend engaging in a scene if you cannot have aftercare. It's considered dangerous. Mm. There's no aftercare for polyamorous mothers, polyamorous parents in general. But I'm always going to give a shout out to the mothers because we've got a whole different thing going on within the family. Um, Entering back into that home and maybe you come home to a partner who's been on solo duty right? It's different if your partner, because I dream of the day in which my husband is kicking me out the door because his girlfriend's coming over, you know, (laughs) like dream life. Um, But he's been on solo duty and the baby didn't sleep all night because he's teething. And now my husband's in a bad mood. Both of the kids are in a bad mood and I'm in this blissful state. And I come home excited to see my family and it is just a shit show. And that's mom drop is back into the reality I am putting back on because I have removed my label of not just spouse, but also mother for that getaway. And now I'm coming back home and I'm putting both of those labels on and those labels come with a with a gravity that's going to make you drop. And so and so is it just we recognize that's a thing and we deal with it like, you know, in the book, you do talk about aftercare for mom drop. What does that look like for you? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, in a perfect world, I would schedule uh, sort of an off-ramp, so to speak. So maybe if I'm on a really fun getaway with a lover, perhaps there is an evening back home, maybe at his place. And so we're not, uh, you know, we're not out gallivanting around living our best lives, but we're back in reality. Maybe I even do a little bit of work. Maybe I call my kids on a Zoom and see them. But I, I have a day that's sort of a buffer between this peak experience and then back to my labels of of wife and mother and domestic caretaker. And we know that mothers carry most of the domestic burden And that whole thing, and mothers tend to be the default parent, which I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but it's the parent who carries most of the emotional burden of the young kids. So when the kid Mm. falls and cries, which parent is he running to for comfort? That whole thing. Um, So having some kind of buffer day or uh, having some sort of support at home. So that because the most important thing is that now when I get home, I am going to set my husband up off for what we in the book call autonomous time. Because if he's been on solo duty, the second I get home, he needs autonomous time as part of his aftercare of being mm-hmm. the solo parent. I feel like that's the so challenge, right? That you kind of aftercare for me would be it. having some kind of other support in uh, so that I'm not entering solo mom duty when I come back. So whether right. that's a friend, another partner, an auntie, somebody in the polycule to just be at home with me so that I can do laundry and also wipe a butt. And I mean, I feel like that's advice that could apply to moms of all kinds of relationship format and parents of all kinds of relationship format as well. And I do think it butts up against that uncomfortable truth about parenting that are, um, we have a lot of narratives that don't have room for, hey, sometimes this is just like hard and it's a gritty reality and I'm not always looking super forward to like being back with my kids or being back at home. And so I think that's why we don't end up talking about the fact that having something like an off-ramp, that kind of aftercare can be really beneficial to a lot of people, not just the polyamorous parents. Yeah, I think, I mean, any mother is going to experience mom drop. So even a monogamous mother who just went to Napa for the weekend with her girlfriends and got drunk on wine and did, you know, slutty things at a bar, you know, totally out of her comfort zone. And then she comes home and 
it's a shit show, right? She's going to have mom drop as well. I think for me, because love and, and you mix in love and sex and anything that makes it a more peak experience. So the more peak you get, the bigger the drop. That's really what it is. It doesn't matter if you're polyamorous or not. But if you're out there doing something that gives you a lot of dopamine and serotonin, no matter what it is, when you get home, you're going to have mom drop. I wanted to pivot to a fun activity that you talk about in the book. It's like a relationship anarchy game that you play with your kids. And so we've talked about the relationship anarchy smorgasbord on this show. And you're essentially taking that concept and then helping kids define their own relationships. It sounds really cute and fun. Can you talk about it a little more? I would love to. Did you guys like your shout out in the book? Yes. Oh, I appreciate yes. that. So <laughs> I thought it was so cool when you said you were going to read the book. Um, yeah. So people ask me all the time, how do you introduce your kids to polyamory? And for us, like we're sort of doing the whole introduction by not by just living. Right. So it will be norm. There will not be compulsory monogamy in our home. Uh, so it will just be normalized through example. But I thought I took that smorgasbord relationship smorgasbord idea and I developed it into a game where you take your child and you take a bunch of paper plates with a, a Sharpie marker and in my case, I have a four and a half year old, right? And he has a bunch of different friends. And so I could say, tell me what you like to do with Desmond. And so he would say, I like to play superheroes. So on one paper plate, I'd write superheroes. And what else do you like to do? Legos. Okay, Legos and wrestling. Okay. Now tell me, what do you like to do with your friend Hunter? Oh, we like to play dress up. We like to paint our nails. Okay, that's each going to get their own paper plate and so on and so forth. And even adults, what do you like to do with daddy? What do you like to do with mommy? What do you like to do with TT? Uh, <laughs> we have a lot of queer uncles in our family. So <laughs> Pokemon, drag, makeup, you name it. And sitting them and then recognizing, okay, so let's look at all these plates on the table. And what type of plates would you have crossovers, right? And so like wrestling is a plate that you have on the table with Desmond and daddy, but you don't have that on the table with Hunter or mommy, right? And all this is getting into... In a very subconscious but also conscious way is that you get to design your relationships with all of the people in your life. And each one of them are going to have different plates on it. And it's just mm. a very visual representation where they can really understand that I am negotiating what's in my relationship with each different person. And it's not better or worse. It's just what do I like to do with these people? And I think... You know, so much of monogamous folks is hangups against polyamory. And like you said, a lot of times people associate it with sex. And I know a lot of asexual polyamorous people, so we know that's not the case. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times it's like, well, if I know that my husband is off hiking with his friend from work, I feel one way about it. But if I know he's off having sex with her, I feel a different way about it. But at the end of the day, what is the difference between hiking and sex other than our cultural feelings mm. about those things? Because even dopamine-wise, dopamine's going in both of those scenarios, right? And of course, I know they're not literally the same. But I think it's important for kids to realize that the culture is putting different meanings on different things on those plates. But you don't have to put those meanings on those plates. They can just be the plates that are on the table. And that's what the exercise is all about. Yeah, I just thought that was so cool reading about yeah. that and taking... Yeah, taking that the concept of it, like you said, that you're teaching the, the concept behind it rather than feeling like I need to teach them about relationship anarchy specifically. It's like I want to teach them the concepts that matter, right? You know, when we talk about teaching kids about their bodily autonomy or respecting other kids, it's not like I'm going to sit down and have a lecture with my kids about consent. It's teaching kids like, hey, you know, that person seems like they don't really want to play with you right now. That's okay. Like, let's give them some space. Or, oh, you don't want to, you know, hug your teacher? That's fine. You don't have to. You can just say that. And you don't, you, you know, it's like we teach the concepts rather, like teach the concepts through practice and how it applies to their life as a kid rather than, yeah, I think people, when they assume talking to your kids about polyamory or relationship anarchy, they assume you're jumping into the conversation you would have with someone in their 20s who's asking you about it. And that's just so weird. Yeah. And I think the thing about the activity too, I mean, I agree with everything that you just said is that it creates this representation that the plate in front of you is a negotiation between you and the person on the other side of the table. Just because you want wrestling 
with mommy doesn't mean mommy wants wrestling. And so that (laughs) plate can't be on here unless we both want it in front of us. Mm. Yeah, Um, I love that. And Mm -hmm. so I think it really brings in that conversation about negotiation. And sometimes you have a relationship in which there are no more plates. And so it's okay to walk away from the table when there are no more plates. Mm -hmm. That's a perfect segue, actually, talking about plates. So something that you mention in the book, uh, but you don't really go into detail about, is you talk about the fact that you and Joe do not currently have a sexual relationship and haven't for some time, Uh, you know, even though you still have a you know, good marriage and a happy marriage and raise your parents together. And I know that on your podcast, the two of you have gone into much more detail about all of that. But I just wanted to highlight it because it, you know, was surprising to see, first of all, that, that, you know, just that it brought up because it's not something people talk about a lot, even though, you know, we're all aware that we have all sorts of different relationships and different pieces in them. And just because you remove one particular plate, I should say, from a relationship doesn't mean the whole relationship goes away. Uh, But I just think it's worth pointing out because I think that's something important for people to hear and to realize that that's possible and that doesn't have to mean something's wrong with them. And that that plate analogy just, you know, got me thinking about that. And I was just curious if you could share a little bit about that. I know, you know, go listen to the first couple episodes of of your podcast if you want more of the story. But if you could give us a little bit of that, both in terms of, um, I guess, focusing more on what that, how that's changed your relationship or not changed it. Uh, and if that's also affected negotiating things with other partners or friends or family members or anything like that. Thank you for asking me about this. I think, um, you know, the mission of Remodel Love is to expand the cultural narrative on healthy relationships. And I think this is one of the most important part of my niches. And you said, go listen to the first couple episodes of our podcast. But I actually want to point out that in the first couple episodes, I had not come out to my partner that I was no longer interested in a sexual relationship with him. Oh, was so it that, later that than that? happens I was actually okay. in season two of our podcast. And we actually hmm. come out season two, episode eight, and here's some tea for you. And you'll appreciate this as I think as podcast producers. Tell me why this is this episode, even though it's more recent, has three times the downloads of mm. any other episode in our series. Probably because it's prevalent and people are like, oh God, I need not, to talk about this too. And, and the I first want people to go through this. Yes. 100%. Right, but no one's talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And so that's why I'm so glad to be talking about it here. So <clears throat> in that episode, if you, it's season two, episode eight of the Remodel Love podcast, we go into great detail. Every raw detail people want to know, it's in that episode. My husband was so brave, so brave doing that episode. And I'm so thankful and proud of him because I know that it was so hard. Um, for him to do that. And it it says he had to go on a whole masculine journey. And I know a lot of men who have their wives coming to them, no longer desiring the sexual relationship when it's not even on both sides. I know that that's it's its own thing. So um, in that episode, I talk about that. I have a theory. I have like seven or eight reasons. <laughs> this is the autism. I have over intellectualized why I think I no longer desire that relationship. Uh, But it was a few months after I had my second baby, so in 2021. Um, But here are a couple of those reasons. One, I don't think that we were ever sexually compatible. I I just don't think it was ever there. But I knew that he was my person. I knew that he was like the one, the person I wanted to have kids with, that I am best domestically partnered with. Um, So I just, because there's no script, right? There is no script of how to be in love with someone and not have them be your best sexual partner. I continued to engage sexually for years and thought maybe we could build a chemistry or it will happen later or whatever. So I think one reason is we never had it. Uh, Two, I think there's probably something biological about popping out some man's kids. Um, I mean, that it would shut off a desire. It doesn't happen to everyone. And I'm not saying that's why, and I'm not saying that's not why, but doesn't that kind of make sense uh, that evolution would have us shutting down that switch and maybe sending it elsewhere, right? right you're like, um, you've already, you've already done that I'm one. Demisexual. You've already accomplished everything you need to accomplish there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> Interesting. I know, and, that, and that's it can be harsh for a lot of people to hear that, but I also think it, it's very real and I'm not doing anyone a certain, like I'm not servicing anybody, but not talking about that. 
Um, another reason is I'm a demisexual. I describe my demisexuality as sometimes my switch for someone's sexual attraction is on and sometimes it's off and I'm not in control of that switch. That's my definition of demisexuality actually given to me by my metamor. Um, and so my whole life, I have been in situations in which I was deeply in love with someone, but my switch was not on and I did not know why. And is it because I have trauma? Is it because I have vulnerability issues? Is it because they're healthy and I'm only sexually attracted to unhealthy people? That's a whole other episode. Um, <laughs> and like I, my, when I realized I was demisexual because of my metamor in season one of our podcast, it happens live on air. Um, I realized so much of the sex I've had, I didn't want to have. And my commitment to myself was to one, stop overanalyzing why my switch was on or off, on or off, and two, to no longer engage sexually when my switch was off. And that included my husband. Wow. And that was, it was difficult because I knew for a while when I was pregnant, ooh, I'm getting emotional. And I was having sex out of not an obligation he was putting on me. I swear it was all me. And just thinking someday this is going to come on and then you mix in the polyamorous guilt of it's very on for other people. And if I'm having sex with other people, it's got to be one for one. So if I go have sex with this new partner, I better come home and have sex with my husband. Not that he was ever making me do that. It was something I was doing to myself. Um, and so, yeah, I just had to recognize like, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. But then I looked at all of the other aspects of our relationship. So I know it's going to be different for megasexuals or allosexuals, non-demisexuals. But for me, the relationship with my husband, our compatibility, we have political compatibility where you're both hardcore leftists, uh, passionate, okay? Um, we are artistically uh, compatible. We make a lot of beautiful art together and we have for over a decade. Um, we are pop culturally compatible. We hate the same things. We love the same things. We both think Mad Max is the worst movie ever made, and I will not be unpacking that further. Um, <laughs> we we are spiritually compatible. We are domestically compatible, and we are co-parentingly compatible. And not just are we compatible in all those other categories, we are 100% compatible, and that to me is unheard of. Why would I divorce a person with which I have 100% compatibility in all of these other categories to go marry someone I'm 90% sexually compatible with and have maybe 20% in the other categories. No, thank you. Pass. Absolutely not. That's a recipe for disaster. I think the culture gave us the script that you should marry the person you have the best sex with. Mm. And I just do not think that that is wise. I think you should marry if you even want to get married, especially if you want to have kids and domest and like be cohabitated. I think that you should do that with the person you have the best domestic and value system compatibility with and then go have toxic sex on the side. <laughs> and I was afraid to come out about this because I knew people would one say, oh, is that why you're polyamorous? Because you don't desire each other. No, we're polyamorous because we're polyamorous. The other thing people were I feared they were going to say was well, this only happened because you're polyamorous. So you opened Pandora's box, started having sex with other people, and it turned off your desire for your husband, which is a very mononormative ideal. They don't even realize that when they're asking. It's totally biased. There's my spiel. Wow. No, thank you. That's I, great. Yeah. Yeah. I just feel like my heart takes so much comfort in knowing that that's been one of your most popular episodes, that you've been able to share that journey, knowing there's so many more people out there experiencing the same thing that are going to benefit from getting that message that it's okay and we got through it and you can get through it too and you're normal you're not a weirdo and to that end something that always surprises people not within this community that I talk to is the fact that there's a lot of polyamorous parents out there there's there's actually a lot more than people realize. There's a lot of parents practicing different forms of non-monogamy. A lot of those people choose to be discreet, choose to be closeted for really good reasons. Safety, preserving energy, preserving their time. Why is it important to you to be sharing these things and doing this work? What a beautiful question. I want to first acknowledge the privileges I have in order to be out 
right? So we are white. So we are at significant less risk of somebody calling CPS on us and us losing our kids simply because they're triggered. So we have white privilege. We have heterosexual privilege. We are legally married. That's a privilege. Uh, we are low income, but our family has money. So we are not at actually any risk of being homeless. I work for myself and my husband um, works. Has, he has a public job. He has a, a little bit of risk of losing his job if this came out, but, but it's relatively low. So there's a lot of privilege there. And I always want to acknowledge and we talk about that in our book as well um it's important for us to be out because like i said the mission of remodel love is to expand the cultural narrative on healthy relationships and uh my husband and i are both nerds for semiotics semiology the study of semiotics right it's the sign and symbols with which our consciousness understands reality and it comes through our culture and so we talk about in the book, you know, the first time you went to the grocery store and saw everyone wearing a mask for many people, that was a very jarring semiotic moment because everyone wearing masks was not a sign or symbol we had in our consciousness, right? Now it is. So simply by me existing, my husband existing, us living our love out loud, and even if I'm some of my TikToks and Instagrams and podcasts, they're educational, literally educational by listening or consuming them. And other times you are just witnessing a vignette of our life. And that is creating the semiotics, the sign and symbols that gives a permission for someone else to think differently. And what I want our page to be and our life to be is a permission. It's all I ever want to be is a permission for someone else to at least pick up another script, to know that they are holding one script that was given to them compulsory and that there are other scripts on the table and they can pick those scripts up and they could just read them if they want to. But if they wanted to possibly enact those scripts, it's okay. I'm doing it. And I'm an example of someone who's thriving in that script. This whole conversation has been super beautiful. And I just really, all of us want to thank you for being here and for talking about all of this today with us. Uh, where can our listeners and everyone out there find more of you, your work, your podcast, your book? Yeah. Thank you. So um, remodeledlove.com. That's going to be the easiest thing because that has links to everything. And I have ADHD, so my brand's kind of everywhere. So on Instagram and Twitter, I'm remodeledlove at remodeledlove. On TikTok, um, Home Slice Productions, which is actually the umbrella production company that launched this, that is a, the producer of Remodeled Love, so to speak. So Home Slice Productions on TikTok, Remodeled Love, Twitter and Instagram. And our podcast is called Remodeled Love. You can buy our ebook through our website. That's the easiest thing to do is just go to remodellove.com, click buy our book. It will download right to your computer and you can even choose to print it out if you wanted to. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We have a question for our listeners at home that we're going to be posting on our Instagram stories. This is one is specifically for you parents out there is what are the best and worst parts of being a polyamorous parent? Also, if you just want to talk about this episode, the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is in the episode discussion channel in our Discord server, or you can post in our private Facebook group. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Dedeker Winston, Emily Matlack, and me, Jace Lindgren. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.